It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. John. Men. It's been another exciting week over at the Bank of England, right? Yep, fireworks uh, early. Yeah, because it's fireworks weekend this weekend, isn't it? Yeah, but there weren't really fireworks. But also, maybe no. there were. Maybe there were. I mean, you know, the, the committee disagreed, right? Not hey. everybody. As you better say what happened first. Say what happened before we get into a relentless round of criticism of the Bank of England and everyone who works there. Let's explain exactly what happened this week. So they held interest rates at 5.25% and they voted six uh, people to three uh, to do that, which actually I thought actually was moderately interesting and that we'd all expected the hold but nobody voted for a rate cut this time um, so the kind of solitary dove on the MPC has clearly decided not to go her own way um, and three people voted for a rate hike to 5.5% so it's clearly you know still like a third of the MPC is actually worried about the fact that inflation is still about three times the 2% target Okay, so ostensibly nothing happened, but something might have happened. They might have had an enthusiastic conversation around the Bank of England. There may there may be a slight rolling back of groupthink. Everybody didn't vote for the for the same thing, but of course no one voted for a cut. And there's quite a lot of chat in the market that maybe we're beginning to see inflation going to start quite fall. And in fact, you know, there is even even some people out there saying it might get back to target. Yeah, and. I mean, I I struggle with it a bit. Because... I love that. I love all the deep sighs. Do you see that, John? Every time we talk about the Bank of England, we either get the giggles, we get really depressed, we deep sigh, we end up being very, very, very critical. And John's at the point where all he can do is sigh. That's it. That's where we are. Ask John a question. And... <sighs> I'm very disappointed. <laughs> no, I, I think it's what's interesting is that the monetarists. So the people who basically talk about, who, who say that inflation is all about the money supply. The ones who've been right, just to be clear. Exactly. Yeah. And they've been right about inflation. According to their view, like we've got deflation ahead because the money supply is shrinking now. Um, I have my doubts about that, um, but if I'm honest, they are only based on gut feeling as opposed to anything scientific. Hey, John, um, that's more than the Bank of England has got. <laughs> You're ahead no of the game. in my gut. What <laughs> yes. you need is a model. What you need is a model. That'll help you out. As long as it only goes back 30 years, that'll be fine. Yeah, and, 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 is, and automatically ends up in the right place because it's set up like that. But anyway, let, let's, not, let's not start that again. Let's not start that again. But listen, it's perfectly possible 
in an inflationary environment to have a period of very low inflation or even deflation. I'm looking right in front of me. I have a, a chart from Bond Vigilante's blog at uh, M&G. And they have this chart showing that, uh, that inflation comes in waves. And every time you have an inflationary environment, very often you get inflation going very high and then it comes back down again. And then you get a little period where everyone's going, oh, everything's absolutely fine. But possibly it's a recessionary period or a low growth period. Governments go, oh, God, we have to try and do something about this. They start spending again, bit of expansion, fisc expansionary fiscal policy. Next thing you know, up you go again. And we've talked about this quite a lot on this podcast. Like once inflation gets over a certain level, it begins to whipsaw around the place and it's very hard to get back down to a very low level on a long-term basis. So what we're seeing here may be a period, short period of low inflation, possibly even deflation, but that doesn't tell us we're anywhere near the end of this inflationary episode. Is that fair? I think that's absolutely fair. Um, and I think also that markets are still a bit too optimistic about the idea that rates will start coming down at some point next year. Um, I, you know, as you said, this is volatile. You would expect central banks, if they've got any sense at all, to try and hold rates around about where they are now. In the knowledge that, you know, I mean, they keep going on about how the last, you know, couple of percentage points are the hardest to shake out of the system. Um, and it's very clear that, you know, the, the economy, whatever else the economy is doing on either side of the Atlantic, that it's, it's not fallen into recession as quickly as everyone had been expected. No, there are danger signals though, aren't there? There, there are, are little bits of data that are beginning to look worrying. They're all very slow moving low. You know, like the labour market, obviously it lags, but it's, it's cooling, it's been cooling off for a very long time now. Um, American GDP for the third quarter kind of blew the lights out. And obviously America is different to here, but, you know, we, to a great extent, they dictate financial policy for the rest of the world. Um, so it's just, it'll be interesting to see if this recession actually does materialize in 2024 or if we're more just going to go through a sort of stagflationary, are we, you know, it doesn't really matter if we're in a recession or not. It just feels kind of, sticky for a long period of time yeah well that's true i mean the the definition of of recession is that you know you have a technical definition yeah. and then you have a, a field definition right you cannot be in official technical recession but it can feel it can feel pretty awful and we may go through a period like that well, i mean a lot of people would say we are going through a period like that but it's just a it's a very jobful recession they certainly would yeah yeah. But listen, um, you know how we have this new system where we have a personal finance tip of the week. Um, I'd like to have nothing precise this week, but just to say to everybody that based on what John and I have just been discussing, do not assume that just because rates haven't gone up this month, they're going to start going down and this whole inflationary episode is over. So don't adjust your personal finances in such a way as to reflect an assumption that somehow we're going back to an old normal of, of interest rates at 2% or below and inflation at 2% or below, that would be very, very unusual historically. So tip of the week, don't be complacent. That's a good one. Fair? Yep, that's great. All right. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. 
athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Marin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Marin Zumset Webb. This week, we bring you a conversation with Kathy Wood, founder of ARK Investment Management, which she set up in 2014. ARK offers a variety of exchange-traded funds, but the one that many investors will know and possibly even hold is ARK Innovation. Now, this is interesting. It's actively managed. It's very, very high conviction. It's unlinked to any particular sector, any geographical area, or for that matter, any index. And it is, as the name suggests, fully focused on investing in companies doing something very, very innovative. Now, this is an investment strategy that worked amazingly well in 2020 and early 21. Shares in the ETF went up over fourfold to hit over $159 in mid-February 2021. Then, of course, things started to go less well. From peak to trough, which is December last year, the shares fell over 80%, bottoming out under $30. Now, this year hasn't been so bad. Shares in the ETF are up a little year to date, but if you went in anywhere near the peak on way up the peak, you have lost a lot of money. And even after all this, despite the massive loss of capital and the higher than average fees that are charged on the assets, there is still nearly $7 billion invested in this strategy. Investors are very loyal to Kathy Wood. So let's talk to her and find out why. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Hugely appreciate it. I've been wanting to talk to you for, well, for years at this point, actually. Ah, oh, Marin, thank you. I'm, I'm really happy to be joining you. Thank you for inviting me. Now, what I want to start with, I know everyone will be, will be hanging on to listen to all your, your thoughts on innovation and stocks and, and the portfolios themselves. But before we go there, I want to talk to you about the macro environment. Obviously, the, the change in the macro environment around us over the last couple of years has been absolutely extraordinary. We've moved from that crazy, crazy that mm-hmm. very low inflation, very low interest rate environment that, that drove phenomenal returns in, in your kind of portfolio into something completely different. High interest rates, high, very high inflation now coming down a bit. So what's a really important thing for us to start by talking about is how do you see that developing from here? A lot of our guests come on and are very much higher for longer people, expecting inflation to be high and volatile for some years to come and at interest rates to to obviously follow that path. So I'm wondering if we can find out where you stand on on the great inflation debate. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I got into the business a very long time ago. I was in college and it was in the late 70s. So I experienced that inflation and I experienced uh, Chairman Volcker strangling it. Uh, And um, what we've just seen, I think, is nothing like that. And I actually think, and I have been saying for quite some time, that we're going to see deflation before all of this is over. And we're beginning to see it already. We think this period of time is much more like the 19-teens than the 1970s. And so what did we have in the 19-teens? We had a war. It was World War I. 
We had a pandemic. It was the Spanish flu. They didn't call uh, supply chain problems supply chain problems at the time, but they were massive. We were on the gold standard, but still inflation hit 24%. So it was a supply side shock. And uh, it hit 24% in June of 1920. And by June of 1921, we were down to minus 15%. Uh, and, and one of the reasons was being on the gold standard, we were shrinking the money supply in response to that inflation. I think we're in the same situation now. Of course, it's just an echo. Now we have another war. <laughs> you know, we have the Ukraine uh, war. We now have uh, the war in Israel. And of course, we had the COVID pandemic. Uh, I th- we think that that caused a massive supply-demand imbalance. I mean, it's clear that it did. And that's the main reason inflation took off the way it did. And now it is unraveling. And I also think China is exporting deflation. And we're hearing a lot in Meta Platform's report, they were talking about how significant Chinese advertising was for them, advertising to developed world consumers. And so I think that's uh, evidence that China, China's economy is so weak uh, that it needs to export increasingly in order, uh, in order to gain um, foreign exchange. Um, we've been watching their dollar reserves. They've gone from 1.2 trillion dollars down to 790 billion dollars and you know it's been accelerating month by month so we see all kinds of deflationary influences out there and i'm going to give you a statistic i i I look at it and i've pulled up the chart a number of times saying really people do not understand this if you look at the bloomberg commodity price index it's uh, bcom on bloomberg and you take that back through history, it is today where it was in the early 80s. Uh, and it's been in a massive trading range that entire time. Um, that tells me that we have not broken out uh, to a new inflation here. In fact, if you look at that index, it peaked in 2008 uh, and uh, and has had lower highs ever since. And we think it's going to break down again. Um, uh, and we're beginning to get a lot of macro commentary suggesting that, and, and when I say macro commentary, I am not talking about the economic statistics coming out of governments. I'm talking about what companies are saying. And we listen to all kinds of earnings calls, and not one of them uh, has uh, neglected to mention that the economy is fraying at the edges. Even Meta Platforms, so the former Facebook, they had a a very strong quarter. They mentioned how material the Chinese uh, advertising was, uh, advertising to developed world uh, customers. But they also said October was soft, and almost every company is saying it. So we think we have entered a recession in the United States I understand that in Europe, I, I think uh, I think recently, if if not today, back to back negative quarters. I think in Germany, um, and maybe in the uh, euro economy at large. So Europe, we think, is in recession. 
And I, I will say uh, some of the numbers coming out of Europe are surprising us, but I think they're against, on the high side, I think they're against uh, what was happening last year when energy prices went crazy and uh, the consumer was in a bit of a p- pickle. But China, Europe, U.S., uh, we think in recession. Uh, we also are very interested to watch the the price of Bitcoin here. Um, in March, Bitcoin, first of all, in March here in the United States, we had a regional bank crisis. I'm I'm sure you heard Silicon Valley Bank went bust. And uh, what was fascinating during that period was that Bitcoin's price went from 19000 to 30000 It was a, a flight to safety vehicle. And here you see it now bumping up again. And you see the um, KRB index, which is the regional bank index here in the United States, breaking below where it was in March. It's interesting. So... A lot of people believe that, that that rise in the price of Bitcoin is is related to inflation protection. But you think it's a safe haven flight. I don't believe that inflation is why it's going up. I know it can serve as a hedge against inflation, but it can also serve as a hedge against deflation uh, because there's no counterparty risk in Bitcoin. It's a completely transparent decentralized network. You can see everything that's going on on the network, but you cannot see what's going on inside regional banks. You can only surmise because they're losing deposits and they have to fund those by selling securities. And if they set, so they have two classes of maturities at the market, which they can sell, but they also have classified uh, some as held to maturity. And they, if they were to mark those to market, they'd go directly against equity. That's what happened in March. Um, and the deposit, uh, the, the deposit flight has not stopped and they're forced to raise interest rates to compete against money market funds. So, you know, that problem has not gone away. That problem has not gone away. And I, I think the other thing is it's fascinating to watch M2, um, like in the early 19 teens, um, M2 is negative on a year-over-year basis from a percent change point of view. Uh, This has not happened since the 1930s. And so, you know, just to end where we started in this analogy, we have two wars. We had a pandemic. We have uh, the Fed uh, throttling money supply like it did back then. And we do think that uh, the CPI, and other inflation measures will turn negative before all is said and done. And uh, we've gone from 9% to 3.7% now, and uh, I think we'll be negative at some point next year. Mm. The money supply argument seems pretty convincing in that one of the things that happened before we had this bad of inflation was a very fast rise in the money supply, and everyone had forgotten about monetarist economics, and now it seems to be uh, explaining what's happening. Yeah, and I I don't think they're taking this uh, M2 negative growth uh, seriously. What what could be much more serious is if we do get fear in the marketplace for whatever reason, and and people begin to say, uh, I'm not going to make that purchase. I'm going to hold back because I need to see what happens here. That would be the velocity of money coming down again. 
And interestingly, the velocity of money peaked, if you look secularly, it peaked in 1997, had been falling from, from a trend point of view. It has cyclical upturns, but the trend has been down. During COVID, it collapsed. Again, everybody seized up. They were scared to death. And we've had the rebound from that, but it has not hit its downtrend yet. And we think uh, that fear is building once again. And um, if you have money negative on a year-over-year basis, and you have the velocity of money slowing down or even declining again, that would be a recipe for a very serious decline in economic activity. The rise in interest rates and in, in inflation and the collapse of, of the bubble in growth stocks, or what people now say was a bubble, and I know that you did not believe in 2021 that it was a bubble. You're very clear that, that this was not a bubble in this area of equities. So possibly what, what happened after that was, was a surprise to you the rise in inflation, rise in interest rates, and the, and the collapse in the prices of lots of the kind of equities that, that you invest in? Yes. So uh, let's talk about that. Um, in 2020, yes, I think, um, and I still believe this, uh, and only time will tell, but uh, I think you had a lot of people putting the chart of the tech and telecom bubble up and putting ARKK, our flagship, on top. It. And basically, they drew a, a line and said, hey, this looks just like back then, and the same thing's going to happen to it. I did not believe that was going to happen. Um, and it did happen, and it happened. Uh, and, and in fact, the decline was much worse, or it was worse. I mean, it was uh, a peak to trough. Uh, I forget the exact number, 76% or something like that. And if you look back at the tech and telecom bubble and bust, um, you understood why that happened. Uh, the technologies weren't ready. I mean, we didn't get the cloud until 2006. We didn't get the first big breakthrough in artificial intelligence, deep learning, until 2012. We didn't get the second provocative um, breakthrough in AI transformer architecture until 2018. And so, the technologies weren't ready, and even if they were getting close to prime time, they were way too expensive. So back then, we didn't sequence the first whole human genome until 2003, and it cost $2.7 billion. This is just one person's genome. $2.7 billion and 13 years of computing power um, to get that first genome. today. We're down to, depending on whose sequencers you use, 200 to $400 and a few hours of computing power. And that's just 20 over 20 years time. So the, the technology's ready. The costs are low enough in robotics, energy storage, think electric vehicles, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, um, blockchain technology, and what we're now calling multiomic sequencing. We used to call it DNA sequencing, but it's not just DNA, it's RNA, it's protein, it's methylation, it's epigenetics, it's complicated. So all of those technologies were, were dreams in the late 90s, uh, and investors chased them. And there, there was too much capital chasing too few opportunities too soon. 
and the bust was inevitable. And we knew it. Anyone watching with any perspective understood that. Um, what's happening this time around? The technologies are ready. The costs are low enough. And investors are running away. They're running for the hills. What are the hills? They're benchmarks. And when investors in a risk-off situation as rising inflation, rising interest rates, and, you know, hair on fire fears about much higher inflation and for much longer, um, they took our strategy apart. And I say they, uh, because our market is dominated by algorithms. And it was, we saw this in COVID. In fact, we think what ha has happened, we, we had sort of the, uh, warm up in COVID and its aftermath in, in 2020 and early 21. During COVID, uh, the market, it was just one month when we realized, oh my gosh, this is a disaster. This is going to shut down the world. In the one month after that realization, uh, we had the markets, depending on which uh, measure you use, down 20 to 25%. And we were down 40%. And we were back then saying, wait a minute, this is, these are nothing but algorithms are making these judgment calls. They're, they're using two, only two variables. The variables are cash cushion and cash burn. And the lower the cushion and the higher the burn, uh, the worse the stock. I mean, doesn't that make sense in a rising interest rate environment? Well, no. What I'm now, I'm talking about back then, and we'll get to. Oh, yeah, I see. Yeah. Before so that. I'm talking mm -hmm. about when interest rates are collapsing <laughs> in COVID, mm -hmm. uh, and we were saying back then, wait a minute, this. Who do you think is going to sequence the virus? Who's going to create the test with synthetic biology? Who's going to create a, a vaccine? Who's going to solve this problem? Our companies are. Why are you selling those off? And of course, what happened then was we had a massive turnaround with uh, the multi-omic stocks uh, uh, being the biggest winners. And, um, and, and our flagship, which had a good smattering of them, up 360%. So it went down 46% in one month. Then it went up uh, 360% in the next 10 to 11 months. And, you know, toward the end of that, we were saying, you know, hold your, hold some powder dry. You know, this is, and I was telling our team here, I said, this is not the real world. Um, you know, when, when uh, a market decides that anyone can do no wrong, any strategy can do no, no wrong, it's usually the end for that strategy. So we were prepared for a correction, and I definitely um, prepared our team here from their own financial point of view, just, you know, hunker down and, um, and, and keep some powder dry. Uh, I think that period that I just described uh, was a warm-up for the next installment. For the last three years, and that, that equates to the one-month period in my mind, for the last three years, it's been the same psychology. You know, algorithms, they, they see inflation and interest rates up. They, they make a very... I've been in many markets where interest rates went up 
and we blew the cover off the ball. Uh, 2017 was a good example. Interest rates went up all year. Our strategy was up 87%. So, uh, but we're in a market right now completely uh, controlled uh, by algorithms, and they make very simple. I mean, everybody calls this AI. It's it's just a simple algorithm, and you can see it at work. Uh, the same thing happened to our stra- strategy as happened in that one month period. It was destroyed as many uh, investors decided to sell our stocks, which are not in benchmarks for the most part. Tesla is now, uh, but for most of our existence, it was not. But most of the stocks in our portfolio are not in the broad-based benchmarks. And so portfolio managers who are graded by benchmarks, whereas we're benchmark agnostic, uh, they, in a risk-off period, just hug their benchmarks. They look very much like their benchmarks. And large cap growth managers look very much like one another these days. And you have an active share pushing 100%, don't you? Yes, we do. And uh, I think, I think, well, I always say to our team, truth will win out. I am much more comfortable now than I was in early 21. Early 21, I was saying, watch out. Now that nobody thinks we can do anything right, uh, I feel much more comfortable. Expectations are low. And honestly, and I... And valuations are significantly lower. Right. And, you know, our... But you're not really valuation driven, are you? We are, if you give us five years. And if you give us five years, then we are a deep value manager. We're a deep value manager because... and, And I'll give you a sense of what I mean by that. Uh, most people, when they do their valuation, they're looking just at this year, maybe next year. And on that basis, our enterprise value to EBITDA looks higher, is higher than the market. Why? Because our companies are sacrificing short-term profitability and investing aggressively to capitalize on some of the biggest opportunities and in innovation we've ever seen. And so they look high now. And what we assume is that in five years, they will, that valuation will compress. It's a headwind we're facing for the next five years, compress to a slight premium to the market as opposed to a very significant premium to the market. So that's a big headwind. And uh, what we must assume, therefore, is that the revenue growth potential and margin expansion is going to overwhelm that to meet our minimum hurdle rate of return, which is a 15% compound annual rate of return. Now, many over five years. Now, now that's minimum. Many people say, well, you've underperformed for the last five years. Yes, that is absolutely right. And we have also faced a period that that none of us has ever faced before. Uh, the Fed jacking up interest rates 22, 23 fold. Not, you know what I mean? That this has never happened before. Even in the early 80s, Chairman Volcker took interest rates up from 10 to 20%. That was twofold. This was more than 10 times the intensity. And any long duration asset caught in that moment including long-term bonds. Long-term bonds have had their worst two-year period since the 1700s. 
It's never been this bad No, in anyone's lifetime. Those are long duration assets. Those are the flight to safety assets. We're not flight to safety, but we are long duration. And uh, so we had a double whammy. We're, we're equities and long duration. So in that environment, we were not going to perform. In the environment we see ahead, if interest rates, if inflation and interest rates were the reason, first, the fear of interest rates going up in 2021, you know, the market went to all-time highs, but we were down. And then the reality of interest rates going up, so double discounting in 22, uh, and even while we had a very nice run through July, you know, we're back in the same kind of algorithm-driven environment. Uh, uh, and that's because the Fed's in higher for longer. We think that will break when some of the deflation signals that I'm talking about come through. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Okay. So what has happened over the last few years doesn't in any way change the way you want to invest, the way you do invest, and the strategies you work with. No. These are the biggest investment opportunities, the biggest uh, uh, in in the world. And, you know, you... you you have to go back, and it's interesting that you have to go back to this period, but you have to go back to the early 1900s, another analogy, to see multiple innovation platforms evolving at the same time. Um, so back then it was telephone, electricity, and internal combustion engine, and it transformed the world completely. That was, those were three platforms. Now we have five platforms and they involve 14 different technologies. That's why we've set up our analyst responsibilities, not by uh, sector or industry or sub-industry, but by technology. So 14 different technologies that are going to converge, we believe, and create explosive growth opportunities. It's really interesting to look at all of history and see how technology uh, transforms growth dynamics. Um, and so we've been through a very long period of linear growth. That's what investors have gotten used to over the years. With the internet, we got a taste of exponential growth at a high level. Amazon, you know, in, in, in 20 to 25 years grew in the 20 to 30% range annual, annualized over that period. Nobody thought that was possible at the beginning. And everybody thought, oh, sure, you'll have these super growth rates, but they'll decay very quickly to nominal GDP growth. Amazon broke that mold. And um, 
And we think we're, we're going to see a, a lot of exponential growers thanks to these new technologies, but we will also see super exponential growth because of the convergence between and among technologies. And the best example there is autonomous taxi platforms. That, that uh, opportunity, which we think is an eight to $10 trillion revenue opportunity in the next five to 10 years globally, including China, that opportunity is the convergence among three of our platforms. Can I, sorry, Kathy, I want to interrupt you right there, just because one thing that I haven't asked you to do is, is divide up the five platforms for us. So can I just ask you to, to tell us a little bit about the five platforms, then we'll come back to the three platforms. Sure, 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 sure. Okay, so the platforms, so we'll start with, uh, since I gave you the story about sequencing costs and how quick they've uh, come down, um, we think that uh, that the combination of uh, sequencing and artificial intelligence is going to help us diagnose cancer in stage one, if not before stage one, and think polyps in colorectal cancer. The body sets up for cancer. And so we think that with multiomic sequencing and artificial intelligence, we're going to diagnose cancer and other diseases very early. And then with other technologies like CRISPR gene editing, we'll be able to edit those those mutations when when we find a mutation now that we can with these sec- sequencing technologies when we find a mutation which is a, a programming error and we have more programming errors the older we get when we find a mutation uh, we believe that CRISPR gene editing uh, is going to help reprogram the genome and um, and cure disease. We're already seeing this in sickle cell disease, beta thalassemia, uh, ATTR. Uh, one of our companies, CRISPR Therapeutics, um, it's uh, it's going to um, it's it's going to be uh, uh, um, getting a uh, a recommendation today to the FDA uh, um, to uh, approve it or not, and it's up to the FDA. But uh, the safety profile has been phenomenal. And sickle cell disease um, is, um, has been uncurable up to now. Uh, and this is a cure, we believe. So we'll, we'll get that. And by the time this uh, podcast comes out, you'll have more information about CRISPR therapeutics and, and sickle cell disease. In terms of the others, um, so robotics... Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, I, I, in the early days, um, I was th- we were thinking about autonomous vehicles uh, away from this robotics idea. But autonomous vehicles are robots. Drones are robots, and uh, so our life is going to fill up with a lot of robots. We believe. Uh, because the costs are coming down. Um, industrial robot costs, we think, are coming down to the eleven, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 range, which is a fraction of what you'd pay a person. And, you know, robots don't take vacations and, uh, you know, they don't take breaks. Uh, they might and they don't complain. Uh, and they take away the menial jobs, the really boring, mundane jobs. We have labor shortages around the world. So this is going to be a huge uh, uh, boon to productivity. But uh, robots are, are going to be controlled by artificial intelligence also. 
so uh, just like um, I was starting to explain this convergence, you'll see in the autonomous taxi network um, uh, opportunity, uh, you have the autonomous taxis. They are robots. They, they will be electric too, cheaper, better cars uh, in, in the next few years. And they'll be controlled by artificial intelligence. Um, all of robots are going to fit that bill. So it's interesting to see the convergence among these technologies as we, you know, think about them separately and say, well, wait a minute, we need this one to make that happen. Or uh, So it's multi-omic sequencing, robotics, energy storage. We do think by the end of this decade, practically all vehicle sales will be electric. And, you know, that's saying quite something given that most of the traditional auto manufacturers right now, uh, about 90% uh, of their sales are internal combustion engine cars, except in China. In China, uh, it's much lower. They're moving much faster into electric, which is interesting. I mentioned uh, AI, and I'll tell you why AI is the catalyst to all of these other technologies. It's because AI training costs, the cost to train these uh, uh, AIs is dropping 70% per year. And when you see the cost of anything dropping 70% per year, you know that we're going to do more of it over time and that it's probably going to converge with all of these other technologies. It's pretty exciting. We've never been in a more fertile time for, for innovation. Huh. So when you look at these five platforms, uh, you talk about them all converging, but is there any particular one of them that is the one you're most excited about? If you had to choose one, to one of your ETFs, for example, to invest in, uh, what is the one that makes you most excited about it? It's, it's life-changing capacity for us and it's a financial capacity for investors. We're excited about all of them. The, the most life-changing, to use your word, is uh, curing disease. Once we understand the genome, I mean, I don't think that many people understand how much of medicine until now has been guesswork. Uh, we couldn't find the mutations. It was way too expensive to sequence a, a genome. Now, you and I are going to get our genome sequenced. I'm going to say uh, when we get our geneticists, that uh, these are all new fields, every one to two years, because we'll want to know as we age, okay, what's mutating? And is there a therapy out there or is there an edit out there that can prevent this disease from progressing and actually reverse it? Um, so I think that's going to be the most life-changing. Uh, in terms of the biggest revenue opportunity, so that's this is more financial, uh, it is the autonomous taxi platform opportunity. So we think the entire opportunity is eight to ten trillion dollars uh, in revenue by the turn of the decade or in and around the turn of the decade. And we believe that half of that will go to the platform companies. And we think Tesla's going to be one of the platform companies. It has collected more real-world driving data than, I would say, all other companies around the world combined because it has had this focus on it, and now it has 5 million robots out there. I have two of them, a Model 3 and a Model Y, 
collecting data um, on different streets as I'm driving around um, and my children are uh, driving around. So, uh, and because it has all that data, it doesn't need all that data. It's not the data in and of itself. They have more corner cases. Corner cases are, okay, what could go wrong? They have more corner cases around the world than any other company in order to train their cars. So as you drive your Tesla, you're gathering data for Tesla's future. And sending it back every day. They're collecting it. And you know the other thing that's going on? This is how provocative this new world is. Now, I got my uh, Model 3 in 2018. I've never had to take it in for maintenance, ever. Uh, the only thing I had to do, and this had nothing to do with Tesla, was I got a nail in a tire. And you just can't fix that with a software update. Uh, you know, but Tesla basically a- anticipates, uh, you know, they, Tesla does diagnostics on all its cars out there. And when it sees something going wrong, it fixes it over the air software. So it's a really powerful technology. And that's why all cars will be electric and we think autonomous in the next five to 10 years. And you're very happy with your holding in Tesla? Yes. Um no, no, it, you know, Tesla, we've, we've owned it from the beginning and it goes through wild swings. And you'll notice when it's up a lot and, uh, has increased significantly relative to other stocks in our portfolio, we will sell some and, uh, redeploy into stocks that have either been hit by some very short term concern or, um, you know, I have just underperformed significantly relative to t- t- Tesla for some other reason. And likewise, when it gets hit, we tend to buy it. Uh, so, but it's staying right up near in the top two to three names of the portfolio because it is in the pole position for this opportunity. And, you know, we know that next year, 2024, as they launch the Cybertruck, it's not going to be profitable. Uh, and it, it's a, it's a scaling issue, just like model three, there was a big, uh, controversy around it. And we know they're probably the comparisons are not going to look that good, but I think a, a couple of things will happen. People, when they see the cyber truck and November 30th is when, uh, they're going to debut it when they see it. I think people are going to get very excited about the next big leg uh, for Tesla. The truck market here in the United States is the largest and most profitable market. So that's one thing. Um, so you'll get a little bit of excitement around that. Uh, nonetheless, we are going to have to live through or navigate through a volatile period. Whenever uh, Tesla is setting up to do anything, there's usually a lot of controversy around it. So controversy around the Cybertruck, how well it will sell or how, how, uh, complicated it will be to scale. And the other one is autonomous. You saw cruise automation has basically, uh, taken all of its autonomous cars off the road as autonomous cars. Now they have to be. Uh, there has to be a safety driver inside the car right behind the wheel. Okay, that dings the autonomous probabilities in many people's minds, but not in our mind. We think uh, tr- transportation is is going autonomous. We, you know, we listen to deer and caterpillar. They're going autonomous. 
airplanes are practically autonomous now. We've been moving in this direction for a very, very long period of time. And the, the biggest question is, okay, what about that last mile? You know, are you at one point, uh, Elon Musk said, impossible, impossible. Now, uh, and we talked to many AI experts, and one of the main questions we ask is, do you believe that there will ever be a fully autonomous service? And uh, to a person, uh, they say, yes. Yeah. What kind of time scale? Well, you know, I think they agree with us because the breakthroughs in AI are happening so quickly. And that's their world. So there's an irony here. The breakthroughs in AI are happening very quickly. And Tesla needs them in order to reach uh, or to get the last mile done. But it didn't know, and we didn't know, that we needed these kinds of breakthroughs in AI to make autonomous possible. So that, you know, um, we have to be very honest uh, ourselves about that. Elon's been predicting fully autonomous for maybe the last three or four years. Of course, that's very Elon. He's driving the company towards that. That's how he motivates his employees and gets his suppliers ready and so forth. But, you know, when we talk to him, he's basically saying, yeah, you're right. This is, it is a tough problem. And because of the regulatory concerns, the autonomous vehicles can't just be better than human beings. They have to be perfect, really. No, not really. When you think in the U.S., we have 45,000 uh, fatalities in cars per year. And I think around the world, it's 1.25 million. Um, 80 to 85 percent of them are caused by human error. So there's a room for a little AI error. Uh, well, there will, there will be, and it probably will be less AI error than pedestrian error. But I wanted to ask you about the, the space sector, because I know you're interested in space exploration, innovation, etc. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about where you see the opportunities there. Sure. There are two major opportunities. A lot of people think of space tourism. We, we really don't. Uh, that's to us um, not a big opportunity in the short term. But there are two opportunities that that are quite big. One is connectivity. So Two and a half to three billion people around the world do not have access to the internet. Uh, now with Starlink throwing up, I think it's 5,000 satellites, close to 5,000 satellites. We're getting closer and closer to the time when there will be uh, connectivity around the world, including in the rural areas of the U.S. and the U.K., Europe, uh, really the entire world. So that we we believe is an $80 billion opportunity. Um, if you also count, um, if you also count the seas, you know, marine, uh, and, um, RV, you know, the RV, RV vehicles, uh, that people travel around countries in, um, uh, boats, ships, and so forth. So that's 80 billion. Um, then if the second one is hypersonic flight, and that is getting us from, let's just say, New York City to uh, Sydney, Australia in two to three hours instead of 22 hours. And we think that using very conservative assumptions is a $270 billion revenue opportunity. And the way we got to that number in 
a piece we put out called Big Ideas 2023. We do a Big Ideas every year. And so you can see how these big ideas have evolved. We started it in uh, 2017, so we've got five years worth right now. And you can see how right and how wrong we've been. Uh, you know, these are big ideas. And um, when you get a, a, a pandemic and a recession uh, and a recession and very tight monetary policy slowing things down, because our modeling is based on units, you know, the units of these new technologies scaling, when we get into a, a recession or a pandemic, that interrupts the trend. But just to give you a sense, um, and I know you asked about space, those are the two big ideas. But to, I just want to, if someone wants to look up um, our track record here, in 2017, we thought by 2022, so five-year forecast, that the electric vehicle opportunity would be something like 17 million units. Now, the uh, traditional forecasters had something like, <clears throat> it wasn't even 2 million units. Uh, and the right answer, given the pan pandemic, which slowed, it all, uh, slowed our forecasts up, uh, was 8 million and of course, Tesla took off during that time period. So who was more right and who was more wrong? The behavior uh, or the action of Tesla would tell you we were close to the mark. This, this electric, the prefer, consumer preference for electric vehicles has occurred and it is accelerating. So that's the kind of thing you'll see in the track record. I don't have an electric car yet, but uh, yeah, I must get around to that. But I always worry about the infrastructure. I worry about charging points. I worry about getting, uh, you know, anxiety about how far I can go. All these things that that I think pull people back. Particularly, uh, I don't know about in the US, but certainly in in the UK, we have very limited infrastructure for charging, and that is beginning to put a lid on demand for EVs. Yeah, that we understand, and that is why a lot of um, a lot of auto manufacturers are now signing on to Tesla's charging standard. And uh, we think, I think it's beginning to happen in the UK, is it? I'm, I'm not quite sure. I know in the US, there's been one announcement after another, uh, and not just US uh, auto companies, but also foreign auto companies signing on to Tesla's charging standard. A, a lot, a lot of the people listening will be thinking to themselves, you know, there's a, we've seen some of the big companies that you've talked about. We've seen them start small. We've seen them grow. We've seen them reach the top 10 in your portfolio, et cetera. But are there any small companies knocking around that we might not have heard of yet that are of extraordinary interest to you? Yes. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, um, feature one, um, uh, Pacific Biosciences. So Pac, uh, what's fascinating about PacBio, um, I've watched Christian Henry, who's the CEO, since he was at Illumina. Illumina is uh, PacBio's biggest competitor. And um, so they are both sequencing companies. Uh, Illumina really became the leader in short read sequencing. Uh, and the reason it chose short read sequencing is it was um, lower cost and evolving more quickly than long read sequencing. Long read sequencing, uh, basically looking at longer uh, stretches of your DNA, RNA, and so forth, is more ac accurate, uh, uh, reliable, and comprehensive. 
but it was just too expensive for so long. Illumina made a terrible mistake by keeping its genome price for about four or five years at $1,000 per, giving PacBio a chance to catch up with its long-read technology. And these stocks are being trashed by the market right now because they are still in investment stage. We are in an early stage for this, uh, these new technologies. And as I mentioned earlier, the ramifications are going to be profound. So we have been watching the talent leave Illumina for PacBio, and we think it will become the leader. Uh, and, and that means it'll, it will grow in revenue to more than 10 times its size. And uh, we think it will take the lion's share of the market uh, because it is now uh, using artificial intelligence and sequencing. In it, it, It's combined them in, in uh, its new machines and uh, we think is moving the market ahead much faster than anyone else right now. One thing I, I noticed that was that you had been picking up shares in Cameco. And so I'm wondering about your interest in that, in uranium and by default in, in nuclear energy. Yes, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, you know, we wrote our first report on nuclear, unfortunately, when uh, I was with my old team at my previous firm. It was a big black book, you know, 150 pages. And that was 2010. And then Fukushima happened in 2011. And of course, the world turned against nuclear. Now, in the book, we show it's the safest uh, uh, source of energy. And with the new modular reactors, the risks uh, associated with radiation uh, have dropped tremendously. China is moving aggressively into this space uh, with the small modular reactors. And we are now seeing environmentalists uh, change their tune about nuclear because they're looking at facts again. We believe it is the cleanest other than other than hydro. It is the cleanest energy source out there. It is the safest when you look at accidents uh, associated with uh, exploring and developing for, for um, energy. And uh, yes, we think that uh, after years, this is, this is, you know, 10, 12 years of being denigrated, that environmentalists and and others are now looking at the facts when it comes to nuclear and uh, and deciding, you know what, <laughs> we probably weren't right on that one. Feels like our only logical way out, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Another example of being right just a little early. <laughs> well, that that if we hadn't had Fukushima and oh my gosh, that was terrible and it was tragic and and so forth and and it did scar a lot of people, but. You had Japan taking down all, all its nuclear. It's changing its mind on that. You had Germany taking down all its nuclear and depending on other people's new, other countries' nuclear. So uh, I, I think, yes, the world's uh, coming, coming back in this direction. Um, now, you've, uh, you've recently uh, started talking about expanding into, into uh, Europe and you've uh, bought RISE. Um, and I was wondering if you see anything to be excited by in the UK. We've had our stock market's had a pretty torrid time recently. And a lot of people look at the UK, particularly from, from the US and say that that's not somewhere I want to be invested. Do you see anything, anything here that excites you? Well, you know, some of the greatest companies in the world have come out of the UK. Arm and DeepMind, uh, both came from the UK. So you've got wonderful DNA, certainly. 
from an AI point of view. So we think that because the costs associated with artificial intelligence and all of our technologies are, are declining so rapidly that the pace of innovation is going to pick up in many countries. I mean, I know the U.S., because of Silicon Valley, had a disproportionate uh, amount of the market cap uh, associated with innovation. But we think that's going to change, and we're, we want to spread our wings more uh, and are bringing in new talent to do so. As far as the U- U.K., um, we... We are not invested in anything now, but as I said, indirectly through Alphabet, we have DeepMind and ARM. We did, we passed on it, uh, just, uh, in terms of the expectations, uh, we think are, are a little stretched because of the AI quote unquote hype that we've been through. But again, great company. There is one question I have to ask you, and I think I already know the answer to this question. But everybody who comes on the podcast has to answer it at the end. Uh, no, it's, it's genuinely compulsory, I'm afraid. Um, so if I'm going to give you a choice of three asset classes, or three assets, should I say, and you have to choose one to hold for 10 years, you're not going to have to think very hard. Uh, the three are gold, a deposit account, cash deposit account, or Bitcoin. Bitcoin, hands down. Hands down. Bitcoin is a hedge against both inflation and deflation. So is gold. Uh, Yes, so is gold. But um, Bitcoin is digital. And if you look at the incremental demand, we're going to see gold already has its demand. You know, it's happened, right? Uh, Bitcoin is new. And institutions are barely involved, and young people would much prefer to hold Bitcoin than to hold gold. So, um, you know, it's interesting that both gold and and Bitcoin are um, hedges against uh, deflation, but uh, Bitcoin's been doing better recently. So, so genuinely digital gold, digital gold. Kathy, thank you so much. You're welcome, Marin. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We will be back next week. Now, I want you to catch our debrief on this week's conversation on the Marin Talks Money After Show. That is in our normal feed, but it is, I'm sorry to say, only accessible to Apple News subscribers or for Bloomberg subscribers. Just look for the After Show online. In it, we're going to talk about what we think about what Kathy Wood says. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you know what? Don't just do this online. You know what I want you to do? I want you to tell your friends that you like our podcast. Tell other people to listen. We'd like more listeners. We've got lots, but we'd like even more. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Sam Asadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Kathy Wood and to John Stepek. Be sure to sign up for John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled, and tell your friends about that too. The link is in the show notes. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.